most of you know, the word Dharma is a central word in the teachings of the Buddha. And it has many meanings. It means the truth, the way things are. It means natural law. It also means specifically the teachings of the Buddha. And there are two great wings of the Dharma, two great wings of the teachings of the truth. That is the wings of wisdom and of compassion. And we really need to develop both, you know, in this great flight of awakening that we're on. Without wisdom, we might have compassion for the suffering in the world. But if we don't have the wisdom to understand its causes, we won't necessarily have effective means for alleviating it. So wisdom needs to inform compassion. Or we might have wisdom and insight into the causes of suffering, but then if we don't have compassion, we're not moved, we're not motivated to act on it, to respond to it. And so these two aspects within ourselves need to be nurtured, need to be matured. So tonight I'd like to talk about compassion and the wisdom that brings it about, the wisdom that helps us develop it, how we can recognize compassion, how we can understand its meaning, and how we can act on it in the world. You know, as we know, compassion is that very strong feeling that wants to alleviate the suffering of beings. It's that feeling of when we come close to suffering, something arising in the heart, this motivation of wanting to help, wanting to alleviate that suffering. And it was really this feeling of compassion which motivated, you know, the bodhisattva, the Buddha-to-be, in his very long journey towards Buddhahood. When we think of what it, what it could have been to keep the energy, you know, of that quest over countless lifetimes and countless hardships, you know, what kept the Bodhisattva going? And likewise, we could ask that of ourselves. And it's said that it was this very strong feeling of compassion, wanting Buddhahood, wanting enlightenment, wanting awakening in order to help alleviate the suffering of beings. So compassion arises when we allow ourselves to come close to suffering, whether it's our own or others. But this is a very difficult and really, really profound practice. Because we may want to be compassionate and maybe even feel that we often are. But it's not always easy to open in this way and we see this in our lives. You know, just as we don't particularly like to be with our own pain, we often don't particularly want to be with the pain of others. 
Now, there are very strong tendencies in our minds that keep us defended in the face of suffering, or indifferent, or apathetic, you know, where we withdraw in a situation of suffering. We don't want to deal with it. We don't want to be with it. Why? Because it's painful. You know, one of my very favorite and oft-told stories of this tendency is that of a friend of mine who was recounting to me a story of his grandfather and his father driving along on December 7, 1941, at Pearl Harbor Day, driving along in the car, grandfather and father, announcement of the bombing of Pearl Harbor you know, comes on the radio, and the first thing that his grandfather says to his father is, don't tell your mother. <laughs> well, World War II is a big one to keep out. <laughs> you know, don't, don't disturb anything. <laughs> well, this is a true story, it seems probably a little more in denial than most of us would be. But I think that most of us have some of these same tendencies. You know, in the situations of suffering, at times, we pull back. We don't want to deal with it. And that actually closes off the possibility of compassionate response. So just as an experiment, you know, as you leave tonight or even as you're sitting here tonight. Watch the response of your mind when it comes into contact with the next situation of suffering. You know, not with judgment and not just, just to see, just to investigate. What does the mind do? What is its first reaction? You know, maybe it'll be some pain or discomfort in the body as you sit here. What does the mind do with that? You know, maybe it's some emotional distress that arises in your life. What's the first response of the mind to that distress? You know, maybe there are feelings of discontent or loneliness or unworthiness or anxiety or depression or jealousy or envy, some situation of emotional suffering. What do we do with it? Do we open to it? Do we come close to it? Do we have compassion for it? Or do we push it away? Do we ignore? Do we withdraw? Just to see what our conditioned response is to experiences, situations of suffering in our lives. You know, it might be to notice what happens in an interaction with some difficult person. What do we do with that? What do we do when we become aware of the huge amount of suffering that exists in the world? You know, it might be racial or ethnic violence or injustice. You know, it might be everything that's going on in the Mideast. It may be famine. You know, the, the reports that we get of very intense suffering, what do we do with this? How do we hold it? Do we feel uneasy? 
Do we push it away? Do we numb out? You know, in the face of all this, or do we let it in? You know, and so I think it's worth making the investigation just to see what is our conditioned response in situations both personal and individual and more globally, what is our response in the face of suffering? Because this will open the door to the possibility of strengthening and developing and nurturing a compassionate response. There's a poem by the, the very wonderful poet Mary Oliver called in, uh, <clears throat> Beyond the Snow Belt. And this is just a few lines. She describes a storm, a winter storm, taking lives not far from where we live. You know, it's a terrible winter storm. Lives have been lost. And she writes, and this is just a couple of lines from the poem, except as we have loved all news arrives as from a distant land. You know, and I thought that was so perceptive about how often we receive news of disaster, you know, of suffering, even when it's close by. You know, except as we have loved, all news arrives as from a distant land. So the question, I think, for all of us is how can our hearts stay open in the face of the magnitude of suffering that exists? Whether it's in our own lives, the people close to us, or in the world. You know, we are bombarded by so many reports of suffering from distant lands. And it shows us the whole range of human suffering, the human condition. Is it possible to open to it all? Is it really possible to do or not? The challenge is not a theoretical one because I think it's not enough to admire from afar the quality of compassion, the quality of kindness, you know, as being a noble idea, a good idea, but then something that we are not actively practicing and cultivating in our lives. I see our spiritual practice in large part as the transformation of our consciousness that makes this openness of heart possible. We don't generally, most of us, we don't start there. You know, because we do have all these defenses and tendencies to withdraw, push away. What would it take? What's, what would it take in terms of transformation of our understanding, transformation of our consciousness that actually allows us to open to the suffering that's there. There was an article in the Harvard Medical Journal quite a few years ago, I think it was in 1989, about a Tibetan doctor named Tenzin Chodrik. 
And he was imprisoned in Tibet, you know, by the Chinese government in 1959. And he was imprisoned for 21 years. And he said, in this article, he's describing what he went through. He said that for 17 of those 21 years, he was, his life was threatened daily. You know, and he was tortured physically and psychologically. So he was living in this most horrendous condition. And he described what he went through and how he came out of that ordeal not only as a survivor, not only did he survive it, but he came out of it with his heart, his mind intact, you know, free of hatred, free of ill will. So it's quite a remarkable story and testament. And in the article, he described four points of understanding which actually helped him accomplish this. So I think it's interesting for us to reflect a little bit on these four points because they relate to our own lives as well. His first insight was understanding that situation, you know, of being imprisoned, being tortured, that situation of extreme suffering, he said that he endeavored to understand it in a larger context. The larger context being, one could say the question or the understanding, in this terrible situation, he said, he thought about what human greatness could be accomplished. And that's quite a question to hold in the midst of some such intense suffering. He held the possibility that in the midst of even that very intense situation, he held open the possibility of practicing love. You know, and what's inspiring to me about this is this is not a theoretical philosophic disquisition on love. You know, this is somebody right in the middle you know, of something so difficult and so much pain and yet through his training this is the question he was, was holding. What human greatness can be accomplished here? For us, even in times of much less difficulty, can we remember this? You know, we're with some difficult person, somebody irritates us or annoys us, or we're having some problem with. What is our reaction? Is it annoyance? Is it judgment? Is it ill will? How often do we entertain the question? Well, in this little difficult interaction, what human greatness can be accomplished? Does that ever occur to us? <laughs> Probably not. And yet it could. I mean, that's why I take inspiration from his experience and what he wrote. We can actually bring that element of wisdom. Okay, what can I accomplish here? How can I open my heart to this? 
Now, the Dalai Lama, who has been so much in the midst and the, you know, of the, the suffering of the Tibetan people, he often speaks of how one's enemy teaches one's patience. You know, it's easy to be patient when everything's going well. You know, and there are no problems and things are going smoothly. Sure, I can be patient. But the real teaching, the real learning of patience is precisely when there are difficulties. Do we value that? Do we actually remember at that time? I remember just some some weeks ago, I was having a little difficulty with somebody and just interpersonal stuff. And I was just watching my mind and its natural inclination was just to kind of grumble to myself about you know, how this person was behaving and why didn't they get it together. And, and I, then I remembered this. And I thought, oh, you know, I should be really glad he's teaching me patience. <laughs> you know, and for a few minutes, it kind of, oh yeah, it kind of settled me back into my own mind. Instead of blaming and judging and reacting, I realized, okay, what can I accomplish? What can I develop? So this is a practice for us. The second insight that Dr. Chodrick had was that his enemies, the the people who were torturing him, were human beings like himself. And that they were also in very adverse conditions. Now he recognized that these beings would be suffering the consequences of their own actions. So even in the midst you know, of that tremendous suffering, he didn't lose touch with the commonality of the human predicament, that we're all in this together, and that we all experience the fruits of our own actions. This, of course, is the the great teaching in Buddhism on the law of karma, that actions bring results. But what was interesting for me in his response is that in our less enlightened moments, we might think of karma as a vehicle of revenge. You know, here these people are doing this to me, well, they'll get theirs. He held it in a very different way. He held this understanding of karma not as a vehicle of revenge, but as a vehicle of compassion. You know, of realizing the suffering that they were, his tormentors were creating for themselves. And understanding the commonality of our situation as human beings and feeling compassion for that ignorance. So again, this is a way just of enlarging the context of our understanding. So the third insight he had, one was what human greatness can be accomplished, the commonality of our experience as human beings. The third insight he had in the midst of this suffering was the tremendous importance, as he described it, of humility, of forgetting about self-importance or self-righteousness. 
You know, and we know, again, from, from much less intense situations, we know how easy it is if we feel wronged in some way or we feel offended in some way, how easy it is to fall into a kind of self-righteousness. And he was saying that in those circumstances, over all those many years in prison, it was his ability to let go of the feeling of self-importance and self-righteousness. He said he attributed his survival to that. You know, so important was it. When I, when I first read this, it reminded me of a situation when I had been practicing, this is back in the early years, uh, when I was practicing in India, As as many of you know, in the summertime it gets really hot there. May, June, it can get up to 120 or so on the plane. So really hot, intense. Anybody who can leaves, uh, you know, and goes up to the hill stations. Um, so myself and friends had we rented this little cottage up in a place called Dalhousie, uh, a beautiful hill station in northern India. Hills there are like 7,000 feet. That's that's a hill station. <laughs> yeah, and then. <laughs> The Himalayas go up from there. So I get happily settled. You know, I was there to practice. and So I thought, oh, this is going to be a great summer. And then about a few weeks after I settled in, there was a field just a little below my little cottage. And this troop, they were called the Delhi Girls. And it was kind of a paramilitary Girl Scout troop. You know, they came in and set up camp in this field, and that was okay. But they set up loudspeakers, and the loudspeakers were blaring Hindi film music, like from 6 in the morning till 10 at night. So I'm sitting there trying to meditate, you know, in, out, in, out, and just this loud, blaring noise all day and good part of the night. I was not a happy camper. <laughs> Yeah, my mind just went through all of these reactions of anger and rage and frustration and self-righteousness. How could they do this? Don't they know I'm here getting enlightened? And And my mind just went on and on and on. You know, I was writing letters to the mayor and to the... Of course, nobody else seemed really to be bothered by this. I was the only one bothered. It took me weeks. There was nothing to do about it. And it just took me weeks for my mind to let go of all of that reactivity and all of that self-righteousness and self-importance where I could just let it go and just sit and the sound was there. And it was amazing when I finally let that feeling of self-importance go. You know, and how can they do this to me? It was not a problem. You know, and... and it was a good lesson for city practice. Noise is not a problem. It's just sound. It's only our minds and the reactivity of our minds which make it a problem. So again, this is a much more trivial example than what Tenzin Chodrick was went through, but it really does apply to the situations in our lives. Can we let go of that feeling of self-righteousness when things are not going our way. So the fourth insight he had, which helped him 
not only survive those very horrendous circumstances, but in some sense flourish, you know, come out really in this place of amazing love and compassion, was his understanding, which we hear often in the Buddhist tradition and others, that hatred and vengeance towards one's enemies are never skillful because they only breed more hatred. You know, hatred only breeds hatred. And we see this played out in so many places in the world. You know, just the endless cycle of violence in the Mideast. And you can just see how each act of violence just breeds more violence. And it seems to be this amazingly intractable circle because of not understanding deeply that violence never ends with violence. So these are some of the understandings which we can reflect on in our own lives in the situations you know, of our own experiences, the wisdom that we need for compassion to grow. Enlarging the context of a situation. In times of difficulty, really remembering to ask the question, in this difficulty, in the face of this suffering, whatever it may be, remembering to ask the question, what human greatness can I accomplish here? seeing the commonality of our humanity so we don't separate, we don't withdraw. Understanding the importance of a genuine humility, not a stance of humility, but a genuine humility where we're not holding on to these feelings of self-importance and the understanding that hatred never ceases by (coughs) hatred. When compassion you know, and wisdom are both present in our lives, brings about or it expresses a really deep creative power within us in how we're relating and how we're responding. Because this combination of wisdom and compassion helps us see beyond conventional responses. I mean, just imagine if by some miracle national policy were dictated by wisdom and compassion. <laughs> you know, instead of the conventional response in the face of suffering or even in the face of violence, instead of just reacting in the conventional way, how different it would be if it could be held with greater understanding. We need to do this for ourselves in our own lives. Compassion directed by wisdom can take many forms. You know, it's not always kind of soft and tender, and mushy. Sometimes compassionate response can be very direct and very pointed. There are many, many manifestations of compassion. 
I'm just running through the Rolodex of different stories <laughs> because there are so many. You know, I had one friend, um, colleague Sharon Salzberg. Uh, you know, when we were practicing in India together, and she had been in Calcutta uh, visiting Deepama, a teacher, and she was coming back to Bodh Gaya where we were practicing. Uh, and she was in a rickshaw going to the train station. She was with a friend, you know, and she was going through some dark streets of Calcutta. And on the dark, some some guy started pulling her out of the rickshaw, you know, and she was fri- very frightened. You know, it was a tense situation. The friend she was with managed to push this guy off, and they got back and got to the train, got back to Bodh Gaya, were telling Munindraji, our teacher, uh, you know, the story. And he was very interested and just wanted to know everything that happened. And when she finished telling the story, he turned to her and he said, Oh dear, with all the loving kindness in your heart, you should have taken your umbrella and hit that man over the head. <laughs> you know, and sometimes that's the most compassionate thing we can do. My observation is that we often leave out the first part. You know, we, we're quite good at taking our umbrella and hitting that man on the head, but the, with all the loving kindness in our heart tends to slip away. It's possible to really take very forceful action. There's another story from the Buddhist time. You know, when he left the palace on his quest for Buddhahood, uh, his loyal charioteer, you know, went with him and, you know, somebody he had grown up with, who then later became a monk. Uh, But he was a very lazy monk, not a very good monk, and he kept kind of, uh, how to say, uh, drawing on, you know, his long association with the Buddha from his childhood as a way to get away with, you know, not making effort and lax discipline and not following the rules. And he was kept on getting instructed and admonished, but he was, you know, quite hopeless. So finally, just before he died, the Buddha said to the whole order of monks that nobody should even speak to or associate with this monk. His name was Chana. Well, just imagine, I mean, here's the Buddha. And one of the last things he does before he passes away don't associate with this monk. And then the Buddha died. Well, the monk felt so much remorse, you know, and, and shame at what had happened. It aroused great vigor, great energy in him, devote himself to the practice, and as all these stories end, you know, became an arhant, became enlightened. And so really the Buddha's act, and I think we can understand it, as an act of great compassion, what will work to wake this person up? You know, so sometimes compassionate response is very soft, it's very uh, tender, and sometimes it's very strong. Now, for many of us, it may be that compassion is something that we aspire to in our lives, you know, to really develop that heart that's responsive to the suffering, 
both in ourselves and in the world. But I think a lot of care is needed as we explore the nuances of compassion because there are some hidden pitfalls uh, that I think are worth uh, noting. The word compassion, f- I think for, for all of us, connotes feelings of openness, of caring, of interconnectedness that almost anybody would be hard put to quarrel with. You know, we all value that, value those qualities. But what I've noticed is that it's very possible to idealize these feelings, that we, that we idealize the feeling of compassion and then be content simply with having the ideal. Oh yes, I value compassion. This is an ideal in my life. And we hold it on that level and never actually cultivate it. And so we have to bring it down. And we have to see this is a practice. It's not something just to admire from afar. It's something we need to ground in our lives and to see that it is a practice. So that's one pitfall. Another one is, and it's not uncommon, that we may judge ourselves for not having enough compassion, for not being compassionate enough. You know, where we see how we are with people in suffering, and we may notice we do feel pretty apathetic, and we maybe we're not engaged and we're not open, and so then we can start condemning ourselves or judging ourselves for not being compassionate enough. And that can feed into all the feelings of unworthiness or not good enough. Forgetting that just like mindfulness and concentration, compassion is a practice. It's not that we should expect to have it fully developed. We need to develop it. The Dalai Lama wrote, The changes in attitudes never come easily. They de- the development of love and compassion is a wide round curve that can be negotiated only slowly, not a sharp corner that can be turned all at once. It comes with daily practice. So I feel that this is really important, that we neither idealize it and then forget the practice, or judge ourselves for being so hopeless that we don't see it as a practice. Here's the Dalai Lama who so embodies this quality. It doesn't come quickly. It's like a slow round curve that has to be negotiated slowly day by day. So the beginning of compassion, the beginning of the practice of it, you know, in our lives, I think comes from the feeling of empathy. Now this happens, this feeling of empathy happens when we're willing to come close to suffering, when we can stop for a moment and actually see and feel the suffering that may be present. You know, whether it's in ourselves, whether it's in the people we're close to, whether it's the people around us. where we actually stop and pay attention to the difficulties, the suffering that's there before this 
onward rush of our lives. You know, we do this in a lot of different ways. We can do it just with the physical or emotional pain that we feel. Instead of just rushing on, can we stop for a moment? And of course, this is a lot of what meditation practice is about. We stop so that we can connect with what's going on. We might practice the feeling of empathy. You know, you're sitting in the meditation hall or, and the person next to you is very restless and agitated. Can we open to that suffering instead of just getting annoyed by it? You know, we can practice empathy when we are really experiencing the pain or suffering of people very close to us. a great place to practice and one that's very difficult. Can we practice empathy when people are behaving badly? And when they're really behaving badly, they're doing harmful things. What's our usual response? Usually we're reacting to the behavior. You know, we get annoyed, irritated, angry in return. Another possibility and it takes slowing down, it takes stopping, it takes opening. Can we see what's the suffering that's underneath the behavior? I mean, why do people behave badly? Unless it's, I don't even know if there are exceptions, somewhere, somewhere underneath it is a situation of suffering. Can we see that and respond instead of reacting to the behavior, actually have our response, well, is there some way I could help to alleviate this person's suffering? A very different, very different response, and not easy to do. So I just invite you, and the next time you're in some kind of conflict with somebody, first to see what are our usual responses, and then to explore the possibility of a different one, of connecting on this empathetic level to the suffering underneath the behavior. But compassion is also something more than empathy. And this is where we really take it into the field of action. It's something more than simply feeling or only feeling the suffering of others or the pain of others. Compassion contains within it this very strong motivation to act. And Thich Nhat Hanh expressed it so well. He said, compassion is a verb. You know, so it's not just having the open heart and the empathetic feeling, the unique uh, quality of compassion as a feeling, is that it contains within it this strong motivation. There's there's a wonderful book written quite a few years ago by Ram Dass and Paul Gorman, uh, How Can I Help? And it's a wonderful title because it so expresses the essence of compassion. It's as if we're holding that question, in this situation of suffering, how can I help? It moves us to act. So as compassion 
growing out of empathy, you know, as we develop this in ourselves and this motivation to act gets stronger, we start engaging in a very active way with the world, with the suffering in the world. And we, we, we respond in various ways to the needs of different beings in ways that are appropriate and possible in any situation. You know, and sometimes it's in very small ways. If we are cultivating this feeling of empathy and compassion, how can I help? Maybe it's just being a little more generous, you know, with people, or being kinder to the people around us. Or maybe it's a situation where we're more forgiving you know, if somebody has hurt us or offended us, these are acts of compassion. A wonderful practice that can definitely push an edge. Have you ever tried giving a gift to somebody you're really having difficulty with? You know, some, some difficult person in your life. I've done this at times. It's amazing when... I can get myself to do it, <laughs> which is hard. It's so hard, you know, if, if you're really kind of annoyed or angry with someone. It, there's a real internal shift that would even let us remember the possibility. But when I've done that, it's amazing how it changes the dynamics of the relationship. It's like we're stepping out of the conventional pattern. And very often, it just opens up a heart space again. So these are little, these are little things. At other times, compassion finds expression in acts of tremendous courage you know, and determination and resolve in the face of suffering, in the face of difficulties, in the face of great danger. You, know, you think of somebody like Aung San Suu Kyi in Burma. I mean, it's amazing. The, the regime, the political regime, is so oppressive and you know, the cause of so much suffering. And she was willing, and she is willing, you know, to endure so much out of compassion for the suffering of the Burmese people, you know, imprisonment and unable to see her family. And so in the face of great, great hardship and danger, and you're probably aware of, you know, more recent things that have happened uh, or the uh, recent Nobel Peace Prize winner from Iran. I don't know how to pronounce her name, Shireen Ibadi, or I'm not sure I have the pronunciation correct, you know, but a lawyer in Iran and a human rights activist you know, for the rights of children and women and the political prisoners. She was imprisoned you know, several times. Well, these are amazing expressions of compassion for the suffering you know, that she found around her. It's inspiring. That compassion can be such a strong motivation and calling up such courage uh, and willingness to act. I think what's really important is the realization that there is no hierarchy of compassionate action. 
It's not that some actions, you know, are inherently more compassionate than others. The field of compassionate activity is limitless. It's the field of suffering beings. And so we each find our own way, you know, through our interests, through our talents, through what's possible for us. And it can take many different forms. It could take a very active engagement in the world. It could take the form of sitting in a cave in the Himalayas for 20 lifetimes. That could be as compassionate an act. When you think, for example, of the Buddha in all his previous lifetimes, how many times was he a recluse or a hermit? (coughs) Practicing with that aspiration to awaken for the benefit of all beings. You know, if we look, if we just take any narrow slice of his life or even lifetimes, oh, what's that old guy doing sitting in a cave? But when we see, you know, over the long, the long journey, all of that became the condition for the tremendous flowering of compassionate activity. We're here because of what he did. So I think we need to be careful not to rush to judgment about how different people choose to cultivate and express this feeling of compassion. We will each find our own way. The key is what is our motivation. There's one expression of compassion and compassionate action which comes from uh, the great Indian teacher um, Shantideva who lived hmm, 8th century or somewhere back there. Um, And he wrote this wonderful text guide to a bodhisattva's way of life. The Dalai Lama is a great devotee of Shantideva uh, and as we know embodies so much this and radiates this feeling of compassion and kindness. So in this book, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, there are a few verses which are called the Seven Branch Prayer. I just want to read a few of those verses as an expression of the aspiration of compassion. Like the earth and the pervading elements, enduring like the sky itself endures, for boundless multitudes of living beings, may I be their ground and sustenance. Thus for everything that lives as far as are the limits of the sky, may I provide their livelihood and nourishment until they pass beyond the bonds of suffering. For all those ailing in the world until their every sickness has been healed, may I myself become for them the doctor, the nurse, the medicine itself. For sentient beings, pure, poor and destitute, may I become an ever-plentiful treasure and lie before them closely in their reach, a varied source of all that they might need. 
my body thus and all my goods besides, and all my merits gained and to be gained, I give them all away withholding nothing to bring about the benefit of beings. Well, it's possible kind of to hear that and maybe become tremendously inspired. I mean, what would it be life like to have one's life dedicated to the welfare of beings? I mean, that's a huge aspiration. So we might hear it and become inspired, but we might also hear it and feel a little daunted. I mean, how could we ever live like that? It seems very far away from where we are now. In this practice of compassion, I think we need great humility. I think we need to understand that the aspiration can be vast. Our aspiration can be, yes, may my life, may my practice be for the benefit of all beings. But we approach the practice in a very humble way, realizing, yes, we just are planting seeds, very small seeds. We practice compassion as we can in each day, not with any grandiosity. In very small ways, we just we plant the seed and we water it and we nurture it. And increasingly, it can become the reference point for what we do in our lives. And even when we're not acting from that place of compassion, if we've planted the seed of the aspiration, even when we're not acting from that place, it reminds us that there are other choices, reminds us that there are other possibilities. So I'd like to close with just a little quote from... Thoreau about planting seeds and how even just a very humble effort in planting seeds of compassion uh, can bear great fruit. So Thoreau wrote, though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me that you have a seed there, and I am prepared to expect wonders. So that's what we do. We plant the seed. We plant the seed of compassion. We water the seed of compassion. And we can then be prepared to expect wonders. Thank you. Uh, We will have some time or discussion or questions if you like, but those of you who need to leave, feel free.
those of you who are sitting downstairs, there is some more room now upstairs if you'd like to come. Do you have any questions or comments, things you'd like to discuss? The comment was that in hearing the news about Iraq and every single day hearing the news and feeling at such a loss in terms of what to do, um, and just feeling she needs to cut off her feelings because it's so upsetting. But I think it's actually possible in a formal way to bring that situation into a compassion meditation. And the way you do compassion meditation, uh, I mean, it has, a, it has a particular methodology, is to actually imagine or visualize the situation of intense suffering. And so you could visualize that from many sides, because there's suffering on many sides, you know, where instead of closing off or pushing it away, you actually are inviting it in. So you hold the image, whether it's of, you know, a particular image that you've seen or a visualization of the whole situation in some way. And the phrase that one uses, very simple phrase, may you be free of suffering. Or just may you be free of suffering. As you hold the image, may you be free of suffering. May you be free of suffering. There was a time when I was practicing in Burma when I was doing the Brahma Viharas intensively, you know, of metta and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity. And so, spent a long time, I mean many weeks, just with that phrase, may you be free of suffering, with a whole wide range of of objects. And it's quite amazing, just as we repeat that, the mind will throw up a lot of different reactions. You know, there'll be, there'll be the fear, there'll be the sadness, there'll be the sorrow, there'll be the anger, all of that may come up as you're holding the image, but you're just repeating, may you be free of suffering, may you be free of suffering. 
And it's quite amazing. As the mind and the heart settles down, you actually can connect with that wish to alleviate the suffering. And what's so interesting, and those of you who have kind of meditative, uh, you know, learned about this practice at all, each of these Brahma-viharas of metta compassion, each has a near enemy. You know, it's the state which looks like it, but is not. The near enemy of compassion is sorrow. You know, and so it's very interesting how these two get confused in us and why often there is the feeling of being overwhelmed by the suffering because we're not actually in a compassionate response. We're in its near enemy, which is sorrow. When we look carefully at the nature of sorrow as opposed to compassion, we see that within the feeling of sorrow there is aversion towards it. In compassion there is no aversion. There is the wish to alleviate it. So this is a, it's a subtle distinction, but as we practice in ourselves, we begin to see that difference very clearly. And that's why if we try to hold the suffering of the world in the feeling of sorrow, it's impossible. It's unbearable it's because there's too much. But when people have purified that place of compassion, like the Dalai Lama, you know, really great beings who have, who have practiced this to a very great extent, they can hold amazing suffering. Right? Because the response of compassion is free of that aversion. So it's a practice. You know, and you can begin, begin small. <laughs> Although I, I say begin small, the, the traditional way of beginning compassion meditation is actually not beginning small. The traditional way is to imagine the absolute worst suffering you could ever imagine and hold the image of that. Why? Because it's easy to feel compassion. You know, and then you extend it. But you find your own way with this. Uh, it would be an interesting practice for you. And you might extend the compassion to all sides. You know, to the Iraqi side, to the American side, to the government. <laughs> yeah, hard. <laughs> yeah. But really, is there anybody that we would exclude from our wish to be free of suffering, to be free of ill will, to be free of enmity, to be free of hatred. I mean, wouldn't we include everybody? Those are the, those are the qualities which cause so much suffering in the world. So if we really want peace in the world, is there anybody that would be excluded from our wish, may you be free of hatred? I mean, I don't think so. Is, is there 
teaching for co-compassion. For co-compassion with others. As I got a feeling sometimes that there are the sufferers and there's the self-giving compassion. But is there any sense of joining together in compassionate endeavor? Oh, sure. I mean, I th- how, how does that well, I, uh, I think when we're motivated by compassion, in in whatever way it finds expression for ourselves, but that feeling to alleviate the suffering—excuse me—that's the expression of compassion. It, it wants to alleviate the suffering of beings. It's very often that it happens. People join together in lots of different ways to seek the alleviation of suffering. I mean, just everyone here coming together, you know, the creation of CIMC, was, it's, not, it's not one person, allevi- it's a whole community of people coming together. You know, and all the social action in the world is often people coming together. So I think that's, that's really a part of it. Yeah. And it, it gives it strength. I think it gives it tremendous strength. It's really a good observation. Um, a basic insight that I think is essential for us all, and it's not hard to come by, is the insight that our motivations are not totally pure. You know, if we're living in the illusion that somehow our motivation is totally pure, so then we're going to be upset or surprised when we find that it's not. And then either self-judgment about it or... It doesn't take long. And certainly it doesn't take long for people who meditate to see that our hearts are not totally pure. There's a lot of ego stuff that goes on. To the degree that we are honest about that, it makes it much easier to see it and to see it arise, 
not feed it by believing it, not feed it by condemning it. Yeah, so those thoughts come, you know, those ego thoughts. If you see them arising, unsurprised by them, you see them come, you notice them, you don't buy into them and you don't condemn them. They come and go, and it's no problem. I'll just share one little story with you. Uh, we, we just all have mixed motives about so much. Uh, you know, one time I was on retreat and um, I was reading through some of the suttas, the Buddha's discourses, and I came across this story that I thought would be helpful for uh, Sharon Salzberg's uh, book, the one that came out just on faith. And I, I read this little piece and I said, oh, that'll be great for her book. So that was the first thought in my mind. And then you have to realize that for Dharma teachers, a good story is a big thing. You know, we, <laughs> it's like we hoard good stories. Okay, so, but that was my first thought. Oh, this would be great for a book. And then the very second, the second thought of my mind, no, I want to keep it for myself. <laughs> you know, and then I thought, no, that's just being selfish. I'll, I'll give her the story, but then more stories will come back to me because out of my generosity. <laughs> And I just went through this whole series of, and it was very quick, but because, you know, I was doing a lot of sitting at it, I was, I was watching it all. I was just watching my mind, click, 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 click. And finally, after a whole series of, of these thoughts, I just said, Joseph, where in the midst of all this is kind of a moment of purity? You know, because there was so much that wasn't. And I realized that there was a moment of purity. And it was in that very first moment. The very first thought, oh, and I realized that even though there were all these other thoughts, if I didn't buy into them, I didn't condemn them, I could always come back to that first moment. So it need not be a problem if you see it. Right? Yeah. Well, I think that pity also, uh, I mean, I, I was uh, giving the, the very classical um, description of, of the state and its near enemy. In my kind of understanding, pity has another uh, function in a way, or, or comes out of it another state. It's when... When we see suffering as an individual problem, I think it's much more likely to give rise to pity. Whether it's our own suffering, so then we feel self-pity. You know, oh, this is, this is just my suffering. Or somebody else. And we see it as a very individual problem, so then we can have pity for that person. And there's a lot of separation there. When we see that suffering as universal... This is the universal condition. When we open to it on that level, I think that's what gives rise to compassion. And that's the commonality that Tenzin Chodrick was talking about. We are all in this together. We are all subject to suffering. You know, in many ways and at different times, when we see the universality of it, I don't think it's pity that arises. 
pity is a much more limited uh, emotion. So you, we might not call it the near enemy, but I think it, it's a limit, a limitation. It's not really compassion. Right, we better do one at a time because <laughs> <laughs> what I've noticed is the first will get pushed out as the second one comes in. Could you hear that in the back? Okay, the question or the comment was of a lot of what I referred to was, uh, from the Dalai Lama and some aspects of the Tibetan tradition, but his understanding is that you know, the, the root practice we do is Vipassana, which is the Theravada tradition, and there are many different ideas about different things, including in the Tibetan tradition, for example, quite a detailed description of what happens after death in the whole bardo state, uh, whereas in the Theravada tradition, of course, there's a lot written about rebirth, but not, not so explicit a description of that intermediate state. In the Theravada tradition, it's thought that rebirth happens instant, you know, death consciousness, rebirth consciousness. I talk a lot I about my own experience of practicing in different traditions, you know, in my recent book, One Dharma. So there's a lot in there. But one of the realizations that helped me reconcile, especially questions like that, is a little mantra that I have found exceedingly helpful, which is, who knows? <laughs> I mean, all we really know, all, I should say all I really know, is that the Tibetans say it's this way. The Theravadans say it's this way. Who knows? I, I don't know. <laughs> and so, that really helped me a lot in freeing my mind from attachment to view, uh, particularly about views, views about things that I really have no idea about. I mean, generally, that does not stop us from having strong attachments. <laughs> you know, and we see wars being fought over people being attached to things they really don't know anything about. <laughs> and that kind of openness really allows me, with different teachings that are apparently contradictory, when there's not an attachment to view and kind of an openness of mind, then I see 
all teachings as being different skillful means for freeing the mind from grasping. That is at the heart. That is the essence of all the Buddhist traditions. Because that's where freedom lies, the mind free of grasping, free of clinging. When we see teachings as skillful means rather than as statements of truth, then we can use many different teachings, even contradictory ones. We can use them as skillful means. Is this help me free my mind from clinging in one way or another? Does this teaching help free my mind from clinging? So I think it is really possible to approach this this wealth of dharma in this very open-hearted way, but it depends not being attached to a viewpoint. Uh, oh, second. Uh, the second is also along this line, or I would say, uh, hope it's not complicated. Uh, as a Buddhist practitioner and also the Chinese, uh, I hear a lot of people uh, in Western, uh, in, in America, in the West, talking about uh, the Dalai Lama's exiled government and associated mm. with his uh, practice. I, of course, I'm all for his uh, practice, uh, for uh, the compassion even to, to the people who have uh, persecuted him, himself, and uh, the people, uh, the Tibetan people in Nagba in general. Mm. Uh, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty critical of Chinese government also, uh, especially you know, this, uh, the communist uh, regime. I, I have lots of differences uh, on the pin, uh, with them. Uh, having said this, I always, always I see, uh, uh, hear people talking about this Tibet uh, uh, issue only from this mm. present contemporary uh, uh, perspective, without referring back mm. to history. Mm-hmm. And that to me is a, is a shame, mm-hmm. because a, uh, that issue has been along for a long time, for hundreds of years. And there are still, uh, uh, from historical perspective, uh, uh, it's a very mm. controversial issue. Uh, so I, uh, I don't know whether you are also aware of this or what what kind of comments do you have? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The comment was about you know in referring to the political situation yeah. of the Tibet and the Chinese, feeling that often it's referred to simply in the contemporary situation and not putting it into the larger historical context. And By this I mean, uh, historically, uh, it was a Tibet was very likely to be a... I am not a historian, right. I'm not mm-hmm. invested into it, but there are historical, uh, like, uh, uh, tablets, mm-hmm. uh, monuments, stone monuments, still, still uh, found in Tibet, uh, where, which says, you know, uh, the, which bear the inscriptions of the Chinese emperors. Mm-hmm. So that could be sign right, of, right. of the Chinese uh, presence. Yeah, the, uh, yeah. uh, so. yeah, well, well, like you, I, I'm also not a historian. And, and I think that from a Dharma point of view, or at least my own perspective on this, not knowing much, you know, about the whole history. The real issue is actually what the Buddha described as the essence of what he taught, and that is, 
he said, you know, in, in many of the texts that he teaches just one thing. He teaches suffering and the end of suffering. And so from the Dharma perspective, it's just to look at that question from all sides. And I think the more sides we can look at it from, uh, the more complete our understanding will be. But it's not so much a question of, from the Dharma perspective of sorting out the history. It's just where is there suffering and how can we help to alleviate it? Uh, but I think there are also many other interesting historical political questions. But it's all, yeah, I think it comes down in terms of the Dharma understanding just to that point. You know, both the nature of suffering in our own lives and in the lives of others and coming to the end of that suffering and helping other people come to the end of the suffering, not excluding anyone, you know, from that wish. I think that's I think it's a common a common uh pattern that sometimes situations of suffering or the emotional suffering or conflict or passion and it really makes us feel alive. It's strong energy there and we like it. You know and first the end of suffering is not a void in the sense that you use the word. So it's not that we come to this kind of blank nothingness. Um, there are, <laughs> my mind's going in a few different places. Uh, this is just one one little image which may or may not be satisfying, but it's something that has come to my mind in re- relationship to that question. It's like if we're really used to drinking Coca-Cola, you know, and we enjoy it. It's really, we like it. It's a good drink. And then we start, you know, somebody gives us some really fine green tea. (laughs) You know, where's the punch? (laughs) But if we kind of cultivate the taste for the green tea, you know, kind of the, the refinement of it, 
there comes a time when we still might enjoy the Coke, but we're not quite so in the thought, oh, well, that's really where the, the juice is, the pleasure is. You know, we begin to see, oh, there are, there are much more refined sources of happiness. So that's just kind of a, a general image that's come to mind. One of the things that happens in meditation, you know, and this is over often many years of practice, but as the mind begins to settle down, to get more concentrated, as we, you could say, process out or process through a lot of the emotional tangles and the, the patterns of suffering, and the mind comes into a place of, we could say, greater refinement, you know, and, and touches a place of peace, it is so incredibly alive, much more so than what we took to be so alive. So it's like giving up a lesser pleasure, the pleasure of suffering, <laughs> for something that actually is incredibly more fulfilling. Um, yeah. But I think that many of us, and we do hold on to patterns, you know, and long-established habits of suffering because they, they energize us. There are other ways. Yeah. And actually, much more healthy ways, you know, they just just on the level of health of body and mind. You know, the patterns of suffering often are patterns of of tremendous stress. The energetically, you know, there's, as we as we open up and connect with the energy system of the body that's open and flowing and fluid and not holding. It's a tremendously healing energy. People have very, div- you know, in Buddhism there's a, there's a concept called paramis, which really means uh, the qualities which have been cultivated over, certainly this life and perhaps many lifetimes. So some people have very strong parami. They sit down and they don't need much. Other people, it's really a slow, gradual process. They need a lot. I would say that for most of us in the middle... <laughs> Uh, and I've seen this over the years, over the, you know, these last 30 years, that people who have a daily practice and then maybe once or twice a year have an opportunity to do an intensive retreat, it's amazing to see the, yeah, people's practice definitely deepens. Yeah. What time does this the question period usually go to? <laughs> 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 One of my, Munindra, my teacher, who many of you know probably, he, he just recently died a, a few uh, weeks ago. Uh, he was 80, 8, 89. Depends on the speaker. 
Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> I need to drive back to Barry tonight. So. <laughs> yeah. But I was saying, my, my teacher Manindra, he once, one of his visits to the States, he started talking at two in the afternoon and he went till 10 at night. And he just kept talking until the last person had left. <laughs> well, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> or maybe, maybe another couple of questions. Well, I don't think I don't think it validates anything because Buddhism and the Buddhist teachings is not a question of belief. It's not a, there's no there's, there's nothing we have to believe. It's all an it's all an invitation to investigate. It's like he laid out certain things and he said, "Come and see, take a look, see for yourself." Yeah, there's a lot, or there's some that maybe is beyond the reach of our current vision, like past lives, future lives. Okay, so we just put that on hold. We, we don't know, you know. In something like the law of karma, we may not be able to see the full extent of it, but it's not such a foreign idea in terms of it's a basic law of cause and effect. And you can see that. I mean, we see it just in the physical world. What we pollute the environment, there's an effect from that. It's not just an action that happens without consequences. You know, people get ill and the air gets dirty and the water is not good to drink. We clean up the environment, there's a different effect. Likewise, if we uh, act in a generous way, it's not hard to see the effect of that. You know, whether you call it karma and whether you extend it over, you know, lifetimes, that's really immaterial. You do things because you see or you expect some kind of result to happen. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't do it. You know, why do you meditate? There's some expectation that in some way it's valuable. Is that correct? Yeah. And so you are seeing this, this cause and effect operate in your life, that's really sufficient. And the invitation is just to look more and more carefully and see, okay, well, what kinds of actions and mind states create suffering? What kinds of actions and mind states create happiness or peace? That's, all, that's really all that's needed. And whether this goes on to future lives or not, who knows? I mean, I think most of us from the West, when I first went to India to practice, I had studied philosophy at college, Western philosophy. I had no 
no connection at all with this whole teaching of rebirth. And, you know, it, it was a completely foreign idea to me. Over the years, through a variety of reasons, it began to make more and more sense. But certainly didn't start there and didn't need to. So. I remember when with Munindraji, he used to love to talk about all the planes of existence, you know, the Deva worlds and the Brahma worlds and all this. Uh, and I loved listening to all that stuff, you know, just the whole Buddhist cosmology. But there was a lot of skepticism among the Western students, you know, because it's not part of our, it's really not part of our worldview particularly. Uh, so Manindra would go on and on about describing the different pleasures of the different, you know, heaven worlds. But he would always end by saying, you don't have to believe any of this. <laughs> it's true, but you don't have to believe it. <laughs> so that would be his closing remark. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> okay, maybe one last question if there is. You know, I've been part of... Uh, could you hear that in the back? Uh, she's writing an article for a magazine uh, for young adult Catholics about what Buddhism might have to offer. Uh, I've been involved over the, uh, quite a few years in this Buddhist-Christian dialogue, uh, and it's been pretty interesting. We've you know, had different conferences... Um, One of the things that's become very apparent is that even though there's, I mean, there's huge differences in metaphysics, you know, just the whole metaphysical system is really completely different. And so when people are discussing that, it gets very, uh, people are very polite, <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, there's not much agreement. But as soon as the conversation drops to the level of values, the values are in common. I mean, the value of love, the value of compassion, the value of kindness, the value of wisdom, the value of service. And so, for me, what has been so coming from the West, you know, not being brought up Buddhist, what for me was of tremendous value was seeing in Buddhism a very clear methodology for the accomplishment of those values. You know, I just hadn't come across that growing up. And so it's not about Jews or Catholics or Protestants necessarily taking on the metaphysical system. It's really, how can we develop those qualities in ourselves? And these are very well-tested methods for doing it that have nothing to do with a belief system. So I think that's what it has to offer.
I mean, it's so basic, you know, it's like, what do we practice? When, when you're sitting, you know, watching your breath, is your breath Buddhist or Christian? <laughs> you know, it's just, it's awareness, we're practicing awareness, and that's a universal value, I think. Okay, really last one. <laughs> What is CCD? That's a really good story to end on. (laughs) Thank you very much. I have a practical thing, Uh, which is I have Giselle Maya's picture for you. Can I give it to you tonight, or would you rather I wait till I come in January? Uh, no. It's in my car on a side street. Where, where I'm I in the parking you? lot. You're yeah. in the parking lot? Yeah. I'll so I'll go get it and I'll just come around to the parking lot. Okay, uh, yeah. Okay. Probably 10 minutes. I'll make so. it down okay, there. Okay, Joseph,
Your letter? Yeah, it's Cedar Road. Yeah. Oh. It is a great place to practice. Yeah. You'll film me. You'll get it. Oh, I'll get the letter. I have got one. Who's doing I advise, we didn't finish. First time we did you extra tea, and I can give you a check. I was like, how do you remember the tea, too? Yeah, I was like, oh my god. I forgot both. I didn't remember either. No, I don't either. Well, nice to see you. Still chugging along. That's great, yeah. Thank you, Joseph. Thank you for bringing in our, our man, Thoreau. Did you hear that, Mom? Thoreau, all right. Did you I, Thoreau? I remember Thoreau. At the very end. She did a scene. Oh, that was Thoreau? Oh, okay. That was beautiful. Well, here's a book called Faith. Oh, that's it. Thank you for coming, coming down from the hill and blessing us. Yeah. City realms. It's always nice. Yeah, that's great. Exactly. Okay. Just wait.
Yes. This is true. Um, basically, all we really need are three rows, and you're basically like eight, nine, ten. Okay. the big white church next to the library, right? It's got a Before you do that, yeah. Um, the, the, those masks go in the corner. That's why I'm not Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.